Well, this morning as we begin our study here in John, we're again looking at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in a section of Scripture that is profound, it's challenging, uh, and we come to the conclusion, based on the testimony of Christ, that he is none other than God come in the flesh. It's a tremendous portion of Scripture. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Now, believe that truth and you will inherit eternal life. And reject that truth, however, and you'll pay for that error eternally. In a physical place of conscious torment, a place known as hell, a place from which there is no escaping, a place of endless agony, remorse, anger, because you have been deceived. You've been deceived by your sin. You've been deceived by Satan himself. That's the repeated testimony of the Scripture and the repeated testimony of Jesus Christ himself. Again, what you believe about Jesus Christ is of utmost importance, utmost eternal importance. Now, as we saw last time, we saw that the physical life, this physical life that we're a part of, is not all that there is. That the, uh, physical death is not the end when it comes. It's not the end of our existence, but there's more after that. We saw created in the image of God that we are eternal beings, that once we are born, we live forever. We saw that there is life beyond the grave. There are two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto life for the believer, and there's a resurrection unto condemnation for the unbeliever. Two eternal, ultimate destinies for every person. Every person, every person's destiny, therefore, depends upon what she or he does with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's the reason that Matthew has penned this gospel, why he writes, John 20 and 31, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, in our study together, we've been working our way through this long discourse. Again, I told you it starts up in verse 17. It works its way all the way down to verse 47, where repeatedly Jesus unequivocally declares his deity. That's what this portion of Scripture is about. And again, that's in part the main uh, point of the whole entire Gospel of John. Uh, it's the deity of Jesus Christ, proving the deity of who he is. Now, remember in the context of the story here in John chapter 5, Jesus has just healed a layman at the pool of Bethesda. And the religious leaders see that. And the religious leaders, instead of rejoicing over that fact, have criticized Jesus and criticized the man because they are breaking the Sabbath, according to them. In a response to that accusation, Jesus doesn't give a lecture on the Sabbath. What he does, rather, is he reveals himself to be God, equal with God. Verses 17 through 23, he claimed that he was equal with God in nature, equal with God in works, equal with God in love and knowledge, equal with God in sovereign power, equal with God in judgment, therefore equal to God in honor and worship. Verse 40, uh, 24, he goes on and claims that he has the power to grant eternal life. He has the power to raise people from the dead on a spiritual level. Verses 24 through 29, he follows up and says, he also has the power to raise people from the dead on a physical level. He has the power to call men up from the grave. He has the power to empty all of the tombs. He has the power to bring forth those dead bodies back up out of the ground, wherever they have gone, or even if they died, he has the power to bring them out of the sea. All the people who have ever died throughout all human history. He says he has that kind of power, that kind of authority, and the authority to, uh, to uh, execute final judgment. Right? And those who believe upon him, he says he will raise to eternal life. He'll give them bodies that are fit for heaven and eternity. 
But those who reject him, he'll raise them up also, but he'll give them bodies that are fit for eternal punishment, and they will stand before him in judgment, and it's a judgment of condemnation. For the unbeliever, John 3 and 18, who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now again, all the things that I've just said are pretty bold claims of the person Jesus Christ. Pretty bold claims that take him immediately away from the category of a mere mortal. Claims that immediately remove him from the realm of just a good moral teacher or an example to follow. Claims that if are not true, then you can walk away from him completely. If his claims are not true, then just dismiss him. However, if his claims are true, then you better get on your knee and bow before him. Claims that are true, if his uh, claims are true, those who believe upon him, he says that will take you to eternal life. Claims that are true, if you reject him, says that will take you to eternal death. Now Jesus says by his own testimony that he's come into the world for the express purpose to save, to give life. John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 6 and 33, for the uh, bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 51, John 6, I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. John 12 and 46, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Matthew 18 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Matthew 20 verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus has come to save. Paul says the same thing, 1 Timothy 1 and 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Chapter 2 of uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy, uh, verse 4. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Peter said the same thing, 2 Peter 3 and 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, it was Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 16, who said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. So the issue, again, is what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Jesus said he was sent into the world out of God's tremendous love and kindness in order to save. Jesus said he was sent into the world so that men uh, might uh, uh, not perish, but might have uh, eternal life. But what is the overall um, uh, reaction in general to the person uh, of Jesus Christ? Well, look down there at verse 40, and that really kind of sums it up. People's overall reaction to the person of Christ. Verse 40 says, you are unwilling, this is Jesus talking, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says he's come because men are perishing. Men are headed towards eternal condemnation. He's come to save, he's come to rescue, he's come to give life. But most men's response to him, he says, they are unwilling to come to me. They're unwilling to come that they might have life. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in however many times we've been working through this gospel, and especially John chapter 5, but it is a quite in-depth theological study. 
it has some interesting and challenging concepts that we really have to slow down and work our way through carefully, and we're doing that very thing. And again, the section of Scripture that we're looking at here is perhaps one of the most profound Christological portions of Scripture found anywhere in the New Testament. John chapter 5, in all intents and purposes, is holy ground. And this is not someone else's evaluation of Jesus, but this is his own testimony concerning the reality of who he is, his true identity. And today in our studies, we continue to listen to or look at the testimony or the witness to the deity of Christ, we're going to again immediately be confronted with the issue of unbelief. Again, Jesus says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. And I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this issue, this concept, because I think it's important. Now, in the near context, obviously, in the discussion that Jesus is having in the text here, he's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. But the words that he says, uh, says, obviously, are not just isolated to them. When he says, you're unwilling to come to me to have life, it really is a declaration. It really is the uh, physician of our souls, the great physician of our souls. This is his diagnosis, if you will, of mankind's condition. This is the state of mankind's being. A profound, deep-seated unwillingness on the part of men to come to Christ. A deep-seated unwillingness to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now, we've talked many times from this pulpit about unbelief and the irrationality of unbelief. We've talked about the fact that unbelief is mankind's core problem, that unbelief activates God's divine judgment and God's wrath. Unbelief is that which brought a curse upon humanity. It is what has led to all the problems and the heartaches and the troubles in this fallen world. Unbelief will ultimately lead to eternal judgment. And again, we've talked about the fact that unbelief is completely irrational in light of the fact that God desires to save men, that God desires to bless men, that God desires to show mercy to men. Belief brings blessing. Belief brings blessing into a person's life. It brings love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. Belief brings answer to prayer. Belief brings supernatural intervention, supernatural wisdom into your life. Belief brings hope. Belief brings hope. And belief brings the promise of heaven. Unbelief, on the other hand, chooses pain and suffering. Unbelief chooses Satan. Unbelief chooses sin. Unbelief chooses hell. Unbelief chooses agony and eternal punishment. And again, unbelief is completely irrational. And unbelief is an act of the will. Unbelief is a choice. It's an intentional position that men take. It's a position that is held onto by effort. And unbelief is rebellion in face of all of the evidence. Now Paul talks about how unbelief is active in Romans 1 and 18. You're familiar with the verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The word suppress means to hold back, hold down, restrain. It's a present active participle, meaning that it is an intentional active position to suppress the truth, to hold down the truth. 
Unbelief intentionally holds down the truth, and it holds it down in unrighteousness. Creation, conscience, God's word all tell us irrefutably that God exists. But men in their ungodliness, in their lack of reverence, lack of devotion, lack of worship to the true God, in their unrighteousness, in their lack of conformity and thought and word and deed to the character and the law of God, unbelief intentionally and actively restrains and fights against and opposes the truth by holding fast to sin. John 3 and 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And there's nothing new or modern about unbelief. There's nothing unique about unbelief. It is a lie to believe that modern man with his great so-called advanced modern intellect has somehow moved beyond all this nonsense of religion and nonsense of Jesus and God in the Bible, this nonsense of uh, this kind of religious stuff. Because I'm a modern man, that's just a lie. Because unbelief was every bit as prevalent in the first century as it is in our day in which we live. Men throughout all time are, are united in the irrationality of unbelief. And again, it's a united act of prejudiced hostility towards the truth. It is an intentional rejection of the truth. Jesus says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But the majority of mankind, in response to that tremendous love, Jesus says they're unwilling to come to me, that they might have life. Look up back in verse 34 here, John 5. Verse 34, Jesus says, Look, I say these things that you might be what? Saved. Why am I here? Why am I having this discourse with you fellows? I'm saying these things that you might be saved. Verse 40, But you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Again, John 20 and 31, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving you might have life in his name. But again, verse 40 says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now, we who do believe, why do we believe? Why do we believe? Why is it that we look upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he is indeed the only Savior of the world, that he's God come in human flesh, he is the Lamb of God. Why do we believe that the Bible is indeed what it claims to be, that it is indeed the Word of God? Why do we believe? The only answer to those questions are is because God has been tremendously merciful to us. God has been kind. God has caused us to be born again, to be born from above. He has worked through the person of the Holy Spirit, and that person of the Holy Spirit has done the regenerating work in our hearts and minds to open our hearts, our minds to the truth, to tear off the scales, if you will, of the spiritual blindness of our uh, uh, spiritually blind, once blind eyes. Uh, to have us uh, see the truth, to give us eternal life. And he has implanted into us an understanding of the word, uh, again, by the person of the Holy Spirit, and he, we understand his revelation to us. Our belief comes to us only by mercy. It comes to us only by grace. It comes to us, again, only by the kindness of God, again, out of his tremendous love. He has opened our minds to receive the truth. We believe not because we are more intelligent than other people. We're not. 
It's not that we have some greater insight, some greater understanding. Because our inherent natures in ourselves as men are just like everybody else. Our inherent nature is we were once where? Dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, tremendous truth, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace to us in kindness and towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We are saved. We understand the truth. We believe the truth only because God has brought us from the dead as a gift of his grace and kindness, and he has destined us to salvation. He awakened us from being dead spiritually, brought regenerating grace. He again converts us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Paul in Titus 3 says, In the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's all grace. It's all mercy. The mercy of God alone. Again, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We believe because of God's kindness. But what about the unbeliever? What about the unbeliever? Why do they not believe? It is not because they were not chosen. The Bible doesn't teach that. It was because of what they did with the person of Christ. John 3 and 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God puts the responsibility of unbelief right back upon man. And why are men caught in unbelief? Again, verse 40, John 5, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The reason that people don't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, the reason they don't believe upon Christ for eternal life, listen, is they're unwilling. They're unwilling. Cut it to the chase, bottom line, they don't want to. They don't want to believe. They don't want to come. They're unwilling to come to Christ to have eternal life. Now, I understand what the Bible says about the unregenerate man. I just read that, dead trespasses and sins, etc. Unable to respond to God, blinded by unbelief, blinded by the fall, blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, and, and some people perhaps even judicially blinded by God himself. It doesn't allow them to see the truth. I understand the Bible tells us the unregenerate man can't make one a bit of contribution to his life spiritually, just like none of us can make any contribution to our life on a physical level. We saw that, right? John chapter 3. Christ's conversation with Nicodemus. So I get the idea of infall- uh, inability by the sinner, inability. But perhaps the greatest, the clearest, most profound, if you will, demonstration of the depth of sin, even in the face of evidence, to the identity of Jesus Christ, 
uh, again, on, on evidence on a multitude of levels. The greatest, most profound testimony to man's depravity and sin is just his flat unwillingness to come. His unwillingness to come to Christ. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now again, in the context of the story here, Jesus has been making some pretty bold claims about his equality with God. And in the text before us, he's going to give testimony from a variety of different areas. Witness, if you will, witnesses to validate his claim, as he did often throughout his ministry. But evidence, or lack thereof, is not the issue with mankind in his hard heart. Because even in the midst of clear, complete, indisputable, incontrovertible evidence, sinners still will not come to Christ. Why? They don't want to. They don't desire to come to him. They don't want to come to him, even in the midst of undeniable evidence, even in the midst of undeniable truth. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. That's a fundamental, foundational principle of understanding the depth of sin and where man is in his depravity, man's unwillingness to come to Christ. Jesus in John 8 and 43, speaking again to the religious leaders of Israel. John eight forty three. why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You're of your father the devil. You do not want to do the desires, or you want to do the desires of your father, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, John 8, verse 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Why do people not believe? They don't want to. They're unwilling. Why are they unwilling? Because they want to do the desires of the one who has them captive currently. Literally, the prince of the power of the air. Their father, the devil. That's exactly what Jesus just said. John 12 and 37. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Well, why weren't they believing? In the face of the overwhelming evidence, in the face of many signs, many miracles because there's a prejudiced hostility against the truth a rejection of the truth they would not believe because they chose not to believe they desired their sin they desired to do what the devil wanted them to do rather than what god wanted them to do they made a choice they made a choice not to believe and then at some point they could not believe because god judicially hardened their hearts. I actually read that kind of a very same thing there in uh, Isaiah 6, verse, uh, the verses uh, this morning. Isaiah asked later on, who's believed our message? Who, to whom have the uh, arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, look, I want to take you someplace. I don't want to confuse you. I want you to put a mark there in your Bible, and we're going to come back. But I want to just show you and illustrate for you a danger, the danger of unbelief. That when you continue to make choices not to believe, there is indeed a judicial hardening. Why don't you take your Bible and turn over to Second Thessalonians, chapter two? And there's a lot in here. I'm just kind of, kind of just hit some of the high points. Second Thessalonians, chapter two.
Now, in the context, it's still future. We're, we're looking at the future. And again, this portion of Scripture, I think, really a- illustrates, again, the danger of unbelief. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. So in the context here, the coming of the Lord Jesus refers to the rapture of the church, described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, John 14, 1 through 3, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, the day of the Lord is the day that marks the end of man's day. It's the day when God takes back in judgment direct control of the earth from the usurpers, both human and demonic, who presently rule the earth. And it's going to be a time of cataclysmic judgment upon the unrepentant sinner. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the apostasy is really the abomination of desolation. It takes place about the midpoint of the tribulation spoken of in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, Matthew 24. And the man of lawlessness, or the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction, who is the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Verse 5. Do you not remember these things when I was with you? I was telling you these things. Verse 6. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. A lot of different people, a lot of different answers, suggestions. But ultimately, the restraining hand is God himself. It's God in his power, that in his operation, that holds back Satan, that holds back the Antichrist. And God will not allow the Antichrist to come until he permits it. But then he says, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already a work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of lawlessness, the spirit of rebellion, a blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Christ. Paul says, look, that spirit's already in opposition even, or in operation even in his time, and obviously we see it everywhere in operation in our day. Evil, lies, hypocrisy, immoralities, false religions, it permeates the world in which we live. And it's going to grow, it's not going to get better, uh, you know, it, it's just going to get worse. And every generation is going to be worse than the one before it. Even more wicked, Second Timothy three thirteen. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, and they'll deceive, uh, deceiving and being deceived. And it will uh, be again exponentially more in the future when God's restraining hand is taken away. He who now restrains will do so until he's taken away. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is removed from the world. That's impossible because he's God, omnipresent God. Nor could, if the Holy Spirit was taken away, which he can't be, uh, nor could anyone be, anybody be saved during the time of the tribulation, which they will. Apart from God's regenerating work, people can't be saved. And the Holy Spirit does that work. So the phrase when it says he now restrains until he is uh, taken away just refers to God's holding back God's restraining sin until he takes that off and basically says, if you reject me, I'll just give you what you want. And that's what he does to a nation. So what he's doing right now to the nation we're living in, that's what he'll do on an exponential level. Still in his grace, he's holding it back a little bit. But at one point, the entire thing is going to, the dam's going to break if you want. God's restraining hand is taken away. Verse 8, when the lawlessness is revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance of his coming, 
that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. Verse 10 is really what I was trying to get to. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why do people perish? Verse 10 continues, because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. Now Satan and his antichrists have deceived and they continue to deceive. They'll deceive even more in the future than saved. They'll continue to do so. People will continue to believe Satan's lies. They'll perish in his deception. They'll perish because Satan, even in the time in which we live, Satan has uh, put blindness on uh, the mind of the natural men. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can't see uh, the glory of the gospel, Second Corinthians 4 and 4. But men will ultimately perish because they would not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. So again, unregenerate, unbelieving individuals are eternally lost, not because they don't hear, not because they have not heard or listened or understood to the truth, but because they don't love the truth. They would not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. And the truth in the context there means the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel. It means the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth incarnate. One commentator puts it like this. He says, unbelievers do not welcome either Jesus or the gospel he proclaimed. Their antipathy to the truth is not intellectual, but moral. And their self-imposed blindness leaves the unredeemed under a damning level of satanic deception. It is not surprising, then, that Antichrist will deceive the entire lost world, as the Bible clearly teaches those who go to hell do so because they don't love the truth. They don't love the truth. Again, with all deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth is to be saved. It's right there. It's irrationality. It's mankind's choice. It's the rationality of unbelief. And when men continue to reject the truth, when they continue to choose evil over righteousness, lies over the truth, there is a judicial hardening. That's Romans chapter 1. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. But there's going to be a judicial hardening in the future when God takes away his restraining hand and all that will be available is lies, satanic deception. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they might believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So again, when men prefer sin and lies over truth, God will at some point ensure their fate in the form of a deluding influence. So they will continue to believe that which is not true. They will continue to believe that which is a lie. They will continue to believe that which is false. They will continue to accept evil as good and lies as truth. God the Sovereign will use Satan in the future, right, the context in the future. God the Sovereign will use Satan and Antichrist as his instruments of judgment against the unbeliever. That's the danger of unbelief. The New English translation translates verse 10 and following like this. He says, it says, with every kind of evil deception uh, directed against those who are perishing because they found no place in their hearts for the truth as to be saved. 
Verse 11, consequently, God sends on them a deluding influence, so they will believe what is false, and so that all of them who have not believed truth, but have delighted in evil, will be condemned. King James says that all might be damned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in righteousness. Paul concludes this section, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We who believe nothing but sheer grace, sheer mercy. And today is still a day of mercy. Right? And we were talking in the future. Today is still a day of mercy. The gospel is still being offered. So if you hear God's truth, don't harden your heart. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow may not come. A person who has heard of the gospel uh, more than one time has received manifold the mercy of God. Now you hear it once, you're receiving the mercy of God, but to hear the mercy of God, to hear the, the, the gospel more than one time is a manifold pouring out of God's mercy. Because the first time you hear it, you should get on your face and repent. Because God is indeed a holy, holy, holy God. And the whole earth is full of his glory. We who believe are not judged. He who does not believe has been judged, condemned, damned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the reason men don't believe, very simple. Don't complicate it. It's because they don't want to. They choose unbelief. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And again, when men are unwilling to come, at some point, God will seal that unbelief. Again, uh, go, go back. I wasn't going to do this, but go back since I read it this morning, that Isaiah passage. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. I mean, we convolute the truth so much and take so many things out of context. I bet you thought Isaiah 6 was about a missionary call. Well, okay. Heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I said, All right. Verse 9. Go tell them. Go tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. God has already pronounced a judgment, a judicial judgment against unbelief. You go talk, they're not going to listen. Because if you've heard the gospel more than once, you have received the manifold mercy of God. If you're listening to me here in this room or listening to me on the live screen stream and you have not repented at this point, you should be on your face right now, not even waiting to the end of the sermon. If Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, the one who has the power to give life, the one who has the power to judge eternally. 
And the longer you wait, the more that you're playing with the mercy and the kindness of God. You're being presumptuous because, again, you don't know that you're going to make it to the end of the hour. You don't know that you're going to make it home. None of us know. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. At some point, continue to reject the truth and you'll be filled with lies and that's all you'll have because you've been condemned and damned already because you've not believed in the only begotten Son of God. So you see it here in Isaiah. You see it in the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that. Why, why did Jesus speak in parables? He spoke in parables to reveal truth to believers, but he also spoke in parables to conceal truth to the unbeliever. going to come a day again when if you persistently reject the truth you'll be unable to believe it because God will harden your heart and leave you on the path that you've chosen story of Pharaoh it's a classic example a grim reminder that God judicially hardens the hearts of those who persist in hardening their hearts against his truth Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his heart therefore God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God fixed him in the path that he had chosen, a path that he could never return from. Now, in the context of our story in John, there's not just an unwillingness to come. There's a hostility towards the person of Jesus Christ. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Their their unwillingness is not passive indifference. Their unwillingness is an intentional act of hostile rejection of the truth. And it's an aggressive hostility that will increasingly gain in its hostility, increasingly persecuting the person of Jesus Christ. I've come to give life, I've come to save, and they're going to set out to murder him. In spite of the overwhelming evidence that is presented regarding the fact that Jesus is again who he claims to be, that he is again none other than the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And again, unbelief in, in the context of our story has nothing to do with evidence or lack thereof. Because in the immediate context of John chapter 5, they've just seen this fellow who's been lame for 38 years, and everybody knows he was lame, and everybody knows that he's up walking around. Who did it? It was Jesus. They don't need evidence. They knew of Jesus' supernatural divine power. Yet they intentionally chose to reject it. Again, there's nothing in the Bible that that suggests that God chooses people for hell. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests some kind of double decree. The Bible says all of us have sinned, all of us fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes upon him would not perish, but have eternal life. There's nothing that holds God responsible for unbelief. Romans 10 and 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Bible does condemn those who will not believe. So again, what can the sinner do? What can the sinner do for his eternal salvation? What can the sinner do once he's been exposed to the truth, convicted of his sin? He has one option. You get on your face and you beg for mercy. You cry out for mercy. You believe by faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone. You believe by faith and ask God to give you that faith as a gift, not by works, but as a gift of his kindness. 
You pray that God would make your unwilling heart willing. And again, we already know that God is willing that none perish but come to eternal life, that all come to a knowledge of the truth. So unbelief, unwillingness to believe is a deep, profound human condition. It's a condition of the human heart. It is endemic in the race, meaning it is to the root, to the core of our being. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the son. I'm going to wait tomorrow to believe. You are already under condemnation. I'm going to wait till a couple days down the week till I can think through this. You are already under condemnation because you have rejected the truth, the manifold mercy of God. And the truth is, throughout history, most men have and most men will reject Christ. And throughout the remainder of the Gospel of John, we're going to see that continued unbelief. Now, in the story so far, a few people have believed, but very few. John's disciples, the woman at the well, people from the village of Sychar, the Samaritans, the nobleman whose son was healed, etc., and so forth. But the Jewish religious leaders whom he is addressing and the nation as a whole are going to reject Christ. The nation is going to follow their unbelieving, corrupt religious leaders who will again reject the truth, reject the evidence, reject the witness, reject, reject the, the reality of Jesus Christ, persecute Christ, and go uh, all the way to the cross, and they will eternally perish. They have. They've eternally perished. So again, you need to make a decision about Jesus Christ. What will you do with him? Believe upon him for eternal life or reject him and face the consequences which you have been warned of advanced. Reject him, face eternal damnation, face the wrath of God to come as those are the only two choices. There are only two choices. Repent and believe or reject him. There's no middle ground with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, go back to John 5 here. As we start to look at the verses in front of us, verses 30 through 40, how do we know? How do we know who Jesus really is? How do we know really the fact that he claims to be who he is. How, how do we know it's a reality? How do we know he's the son of God? How do we know he is equal with God? How do we know he has the power to give spiritual life? How do we know he has the authority to raise the dead, to bring all men before the judgment throne? How do we know his claims are true? What evidence for us backs that up? Because in the Jewish mind, you had to have two or three witnesses to establish any legal matter. So Jesus, in the text before us, is going to present witnesses to verify his claim. The word witness, or I think some of the versions say testimony. Witness or testimony, important concept in John. He uses the noun uh, and the verb 47 times in the gospel, 30 more times in his epistles, and in the book of the Revelation. How do we know the claims of Christ are true? He's going to bring forth witnesses. He's going to bring four different kinds of witnesses. 
The main witness is, is uh, the, way, the main witness is his father, the father in heaven. Then he's going to bring to the witness stand, if you will, his forerunner, John the Baptist. Then he's going to bring testimony or the next witness, the, his miraculous works, the works that he's done. And then he's going to bring the scriptures, which, again, the Jews in the context that are standing around him, they profess they honor. So each of these are lines of evidence. Each of these are testimony. Witnesses verifying the validity that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. J.C. Ryle makes this comment, comment. He says, Hard must those hearts have been which could hear such testimony and yet remain unmoved. But it only proves the truth of the old saying that unbelief does not arise much, so much from want of evidence as it does from want of will to believe. Right? Men simply don't want to believe the truth. They simply don't want to come to Christ. So again, what Jesus is going to do in verses 30 to 40, he's going to bring the Father to the test to give testimony uh, about who he is. And there are kind of descending levels of testimony, if you will. Of course, the most important, the greatest testimony is God the Father. The most important witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is God the Father. John himself in 1 John 5, 9 says, If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. You say, look, in everyday life, on a variety of different levels, we accept men's testimony on a variety of different issues. Fallible men. Is this place good to eat? Yes, it is. You accept their testimony. They're fallible. John's argument is, look, if we accept a fallible witness of fallible men on a regular basis, Shouldn't we accept much more so the infallible word, the truth, from the one who knows all truth? The one who is absolute truth? If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he bore witness concerning his Son. And we know who God is. He is truth, all truth. He is the one who is absolute truth. The commentator Leon Morris says, Leon Morris says, Truth is characteristic of God, and it is only as we know God that we know truth. So he says you can't know truth unless you know the one who is truth. That's why the culture is so screwed up on so many variety of different levels, because the fool says there is no God. Therefore, they just keep inventing it and making it up and changing this and changing that, because they don't understand truth. In fact, there's a whole line of people that says, well, we... <laughs> There may not even be anything as absolute truth. We can't know anything for truth. Right? No lies of the truth. It's truth found in the person of God. Nobody can know the truth unless you know the one who is the truth. It's interesting that John uses the Greek noun for truth 25 times in his gospel. 20 times in his epistles. Listen. As compared to only one time does Matthew use it, and only three times is it used in Mark and Luke. I would venture to say that truth is an important concept to John. He uses it vastly more than all of the other New Testament writers. So Jesus will assert that the Father's testimony about him is true, and that John has testified to the truth, and later he's going to, John the Baptist has testified to the truth, and later in the book he's going to claim that he actually is the truth. Jesus is. John 14, 6. He's going to affirm in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 7, uh, 17, 17, your word is truth. 
He's going to tell the old cynical pilot, John 18, 37, for this reason I've been born, this reason I've come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So there is truth. And it centers upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the word of God, the truth. So John is writing to give truthful witness, truthful testimony. And Jesus is going to bring witnesses, if you will, in defense of his deity. And he's not bringing witnesses forward, listen, to win an argument. He's not bringing witnesses forward to win an argument. He's bringing witnesses forward to win souls. Again, look at verse 34. I see these things that you might be saved. Verse 40, again, you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now look, there's a lot in the text before us, and obviously I'm not going to be able to get through it all at once, especially as late as the hour it is. But let's just start here in verse 30. And verse 30 really is a summary. It's a summary statement of everything that he said in verses 19, or verse 17 through 29 so far. And it again introduces Jesus, uh, introduces Jesus' relationship to the Father. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not only is verse 30 a summary statement of what he has said from 17 to 29, but verse 30 is almost exactly what he said in verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. But what you have to notice here in verse 30 and on is uh, carefully notice that Jesus has changed the pronoun. And from this point forward, he's using the first person singular. As I hear, I judge. If I, verse 34, I see these things, I have a greater testimony. It's first person singular, and that's intentional and that's new. Because previously up to verse 30, he was talking in the third person, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He was making claims that he was equal with God, claims that no doubt were bizarre to hear in the ears of the Jewish leaders around him, outrageous even. But at that point, up to that point, he really kind of distanced himself again, the Son Son of God, right? And he kind of distanced himself a little bit by the using the third person. But now, again, instead of backing away from the argument, he's raising it to another level. And he speaks in the first person. So he's not distancing himself whatsoever. He is emphasizing the fact that the Jews have no right to judge him. They have no right to condemn him because what he had done to this man at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath or anything that he does in general is something which he alone is not not responsible for because he says, I can't do anything apart from my father. I can do nothing of myself. So the Jews coming and condemning him uh, and criticizing him as the Son of God are really in opposition to the one they say that they're serving and leading, uh, leading people to, right? They're, they're standing in opposition to God the Father himself. I can do nothing on my own initiative. The Jews were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, and double, Jesus kind of doubles down and says, look, I'm equal with God. I don't do anything on my own. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I don't do, act independently of the Father. I only do what he does. I only do what he does. I do it the way he does it. I do it the way when he does it. 
why he does it, where he does it, as he does it, etc. and so forth. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he's saying he is the one who is one with God. He's one with God. He's saying that his will is equal with the will of the Father. His divine nature as the Son of God makes it impossible for him to seek his own will independently from the Father. So the judgment that he has is not only his, but it's the Father's also. And again, he's saying, I'm one with, with the Father, in essence with the Father. One will, one mind, one purpose. Now again, he's already previously said he's one with God in nature, one with God in works, one with God in love, knowledge, sovereign power and judgment. Again, equal to God in honor and worship. And the truth there in the context, rather than him being a blasphemer for blaspheming their Sabbath, the reality is it's the religious leaders who are blaspheming God. The religious leaders of Israel, they are blaspheming God. Because God is standing physically in their presence, toe to toe, and they can't see him. No, they won't see him. They choose not to see him. They reject him. Now, again, it's one thing for a person to make claims concerning themselves. It's one thing for Jesus to make a claim. But again, who is he to make these kind of claims? Verse 31. If I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. <gasps> What's he saying? Well, obviously, he's not saying, look, I'm lying about myself. That what he said with reference to himself and God the Father is not true, because if that were true, if he was lying, then Jesus would not be the sinless one. He'd not be the holy God. It's not what he's saying. Ryle says it would be folly and blasphemy to say that our Lord's testimony about himself is false. What he is saying, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony isn't, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. What he's saying, look, is if I have no other testimony, no other buddy else to come forward to prove my claims, to prove my Messiahship, but my own word, then my testimony would be open to suspicion. That would make sense, right? If there's no one else to confirm it, it would be justly open to suspicion. Makes sense. Again, the Lord knows that. The, the Lord knows that any single um, uh, man's assertions of his own life in his own favor are worth nothing or little to nothing. You need someone else to come and confirm the testimony. You need someone else to come uh, give uh, a witness. You need someone to come and give external objective evidence. Now, again, because in the Old Testament, it said uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, everything has to be confirmed out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. So Jesus, in the context, says, in essence, I'm going to call God the Father to the witness stand. And I'm going to allow God the Father to give testimony concerning everything that I just said. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Again, this is the Father. This is the Father who speaks with absolute truthfulness. And the testimony that the Father is going to give is a threefold testimony. And all I can do at the time we got left is just give you the outline. But you'll see it here. The first line of witness that the Father bears concerning Jesus, the first line is through John the Baptist, verse 33. You have sent to John, and he bore witness of the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I see these things that you may be saved. 
He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice in for a while in his light. Right? Jesus, John the Baptist shows up. He testifies to the deity of Christ. How did John the Baptist get here? Remember? By the will of God. John the Baptist was sent into the world by the will of God. Remember the supernatural conception of, of the child when Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias were old, beyond childbearing years? God the Father miraculously brings forth the conception because he's bringing forth his spokesman, the one who's the forerunner to the Christ. John the Baptist, first line of witness, second line of witness. That the Father bears concerning Jesus is Jesus' works, Jesus' miracles, verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The miraculous works, the power of Christ, compelling testimony, again, that he is equal with God. Again, he performed so many miracles, so many signs, that even his bitterest enemies, the chief priests and the Pharisees, could not deny his power. Again, they blasphemously charged that what he did was by the power of hell, the power of Satan. But Jesus says, I do all, or all I do is the work of the Father who sent me. Testimony of John the Baptist through the Father. Testimony of the miraculous power. Third line of witness. It's how the Father bears witness to Jesus through the Scripture. Through the Word. Verse 37, the Father who sent me, he bore witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him who he sent. Just like modern liberals, right? Modern theological liberals. They claim to believe the word of God, yet they're unbelieving. Old Testament gave full revelation of the fact that Jesus was God come in the flesh. And Jesus is standing right in front of them, and he is God's final revelation to mankind. But these men, religious men, were not believers in the true God. They're not believers in the word of God. But the Father bears witness to the truthfulness of who Jesus is through his word. Through his word. Verse 39, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may be saved. You're unwilling. What was the reason for the Father to give witness to Jesus? What was the, the, the reason that the Father sent Jesus into the world is so that men might have life, right? You're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Listen, if men refuse the testimony of God the Father, whose ultimate truth, if men refuse the testimony of God the Father, if they refuse the testimony of God the Father through John the Baptist, through the miraculous power, the work of the person of Jesus Christ, and through the word of God, if men reject those three lines of evidence, then they put themselves outside of the realm of eternal life. It's that simple. And this life isn't it. There's more to come. Two destinies for all mankind. Resurrection of life for the believer and a resurrection under condemnation for those who don't believe. And again, what establishes forever the eternal destiny of the two groups is what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus. 